0: We're here to praise the Lord, and that's the first thing we're going to do. We're going to stand together, if you're able, and let's uh, praise the name of the Lord.
1: to you today. We've come together in Jesus' name. Lord, for he's worthy, so worthy. Jesus Christ, the Lord. We will praise the name of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. For he's worthy, so worthy to be worshipped and adored. We will praise the name of the Lord the Lord.
2: Good morning. Welcome to Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. I am Ian. I'm a, one of the pastors here, and we're super excited for you to be with us. If you're new or haven't been here for a while or just have a prayer request, there's these sheets just in front of you in the, uh, in the pew in front of you. If you want to just fill that out, you can put it in one of the um, baskets in back. We just love to connect with you. Or if, <clears throat> excuse me, or if you do have a prayer request, um, we would love to, to pray for you. A couple of quick announcements this morning. We are doing an Easter brunch this year. Um, That's going to be on Easter. So um, if you would RSVP, uh, you can call the church office or email secretary at tlefc.org. Men's Fellowship Bible Study is getting back going. Um, Pastor Tim and Bob are leading it. It's going to be... Which Saturday is it, Bob? Second Saturday, every month, so this coming Saturday, Romans 11, so if you want to uh, join them for that, 8 to 9 a.m., and then Common Ground is coming up, March 18th, ladies, at 6.30, it'll be downstairs, or you can do it via Zoom, and finally, Daylight Savings is coming up, so don't forget about that. Uh, With that, I'm turning it over back to Eric. Thanks,
0: Ian. So... As we continue in our worship, let me just uh, pray briefly for us. Lord, we just thank you so much that you have loved us, you have sought us out, you have redeemed us, and you have changed us. Lord, we come to worship you because of all that. Lord, I pray that as we worship this morning, that you would show each of us something of yourself this morning. We welcome you into our service. We praise you and we worship you, For Jesus' sake. Amen. So we're going to read some scripture together. We'll read it responsively. So if you would um, read with me as we look at the uh, the words as they appear on the screen. This is from the book of John. We're actually focusing on Christ and uh, who He is in. This grand scheme of the universe. And so this is a passage from, from the book of John. And then we'll read one from the book of Colossians in a little bit. So let's read responsibly together. And by the way, the word in this passage refers to Christ. Most of you know that, just to make sure that that's crystal clear. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God
1: So the Word became human and made His home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son.
0: Stand together and worship with us.
3: Do you feel the world is broken?
4: Is anyone old?
1: Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah, who conquered the grave. He is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is he worthy? Is He worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is He worthy of His care? Does
3: the Father truly love us? Does the Spirit move among us? And does Jesus, our Messiah, hold forever those He loves? Does our God intend to dwell again with us?
4: Is anyone
1: worthy? Is anyone wrong? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah who conquered the grave. He is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave from every people and tribe every nation at all. He has made us a kingdom and priest to God to reign with the Son. Is He one?
5: time of worship, one of the ways we want to invite you to worship with us is through giving. And so if you want to give, uh, you can drop an offering in the basket on your left on the way out or give online at tlefc.org give. There's information about that. If you're visiting or you're new, please we understand we're not asking you to give. We want this service to be a gift to you. But if you are a regular attender here and want to worship with us in that way, we would invite you to do that. I was doing kind of my daily Bible reading this week. I was reading in Second Thessalonians 1, and I was just struck by Paul's prayer for the church in Thessal- Thessalonia. All right, and he, he prayed a couple of things. In verse 3 he says, Dear brothers and sisters, we can't help but thank God for you because your faith is flourishing and your love for one another is growing. And then in verse 11 he says, So we keep on praying for you asking our God to enable you to live a life worthy of His call. And He says, May He give you the power to accomplish all the good things your faith prompts you to do. I just want to pray those things for us this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we we do praise You for the work you're doing in the lives of many people gathered here to cause their faith to flourish, the way you're growing many people here to be more and more conformed to the image of your Son, the way you work in each of our lives to draw us closer to you. Father, we also acknowledge that some of us here feel stuck, feel stagnant, feel maybe far from you this morning. For those of us who are in that position, God, we pray that you would work, that you would reveal yourself more and more to us, that you would spur us to growth, that you'd spur us to an increased knowledge of who you are, that you would cause our faith to flourish. God, we pray as well. We praise you for the way that the love for one another is evident among people in this gathering among like people in this church, God, that we love each other well. God, I pray that you show us more and more what it looks like to care for people in this body of believers, care for people in our community, to love one another well. Teach us how to do that. Help us to grow in that That so we could bring glory to your name. God, for each of us, I do pray that you would, you would enable us Paul prays, to live a life worthy of your call. Everything you've called us to do, that we would live a life worthy of what you've called us to. We know you've already done all that needs to be done through Jesus to help us to live a life that reflects what it means to be a follower of him. God, would you as well, as we seek to live life to honor you, as we feel led to do to do things by our faith, that you would enable us, that you would give us the power to accomplish those things, that we know that we can't do it on our own, we can't do things in our own power. Even if they're good, thank God, in our own power, we will fail. But God, by your Holy Spirit at work in us, would you enable us, That you empower us to do the things you have called us to do, that you have prompted us to do. And because of all that, would your name be glorified throughout through legs, throughout this area, throughout the world, if Christians everywhere are obedient to you, they do good work empowered by your Holy Spirit. And we praise you that you are at work in each of us to bring about your Good purposes,
0: in Jesus' name, Amen. We continue in our worship. If you would stand, and I'll read another passage about who Christ is from the Book of Colossians. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created And he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. And so, he is first in everything. For God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. What a great God and Savior we have. Let's sing about Him. What a friend we have in Jesus.
1: and greet you
5: praise you that you do indeed hold us fast, that you love us, that you care for us. Do not forsake us. Help us to worship you, praise you in light of that. Let's hear your word this morning, trusting that you are a good God who loves us and holds us fast. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're going to compile a list of like least newsworthy jobs ever. Like seems like lexicographer would be high on that list. Like a lexicographer is someone who compiles dictionaries. It's like seems like a not very newsworthy profession. You put a bunch of dictionaries together. Like what could be less newsworthy than that? And yeah, like every year the people at the Oxford English Dictionary create a little buzz little news, by releasing their list of new words they've added to the dictionary for that year. So in recent years, they've added words like adulting, which is, they define as the practice of behaving in a way characteristic of a responsible adult, especially the accomplishment of mundane but necessary tasks. Or a few years ago, they added selfie, right? Take a little picture of yourself. Or a while back, they added glamping, right? Which is like, glamorous camping. And so they add all these words that they kind of come into use in the language. Like, perhaps my favorite word they've added recently is the word hangry, like, which they define as being bad-tempered or irritable as a result of hunger. Like, Again, the reason that word appeals to me is it, it, it provides a simple way to communicate something I know very real Right? Like, that I'm all too familiar with. Like I know that feeling, until that word appeals. I mean, that's what that's what language is supposed to do, right? Like it's supposed to help us communicate our thoughts and our feelings and our ideas to those around us. Again, like who can't relate to being a little more irritable when you're hungry? Like I like to think I've gotten better as I've gotten older, right? but but teenage me was like king of hanger. Like, my parents and brother here, like, they could regale you with stories about me as a teenager in my hangry state. Right? But I'm just telling you, if you want to maintain any shred of respect for me as your pastor, like, don't ask for those stories. Because <laughs> they're not pretty. Right? But if I'm being honest, like, the real reason I like the word hangry is that it helps me excuse my sin. Like, yeah, I acted like a jerk, but it wasn't my fault. I was just hangry. Like, like Snickers, like the candy bar company. Like they have a whole ad campaign with the tagline, you're not you when you're hungry. Like, it's like, oh, it's not him. It's his hunger talking. It's not, it's not his fault he acted that way. Like, that's just one small example of a much wider problem in society as a whole which is that we've gotten really good at excusing and blaming our sin on outside influences. But the clear teaching of the Bible is that you are responsible for your actions like, no matter what is going on around you. Right? Sin is still sin no matter what outside influences are affecting you when you commit that sin. And nowhere is that more clear than in Luke 4, our passage today. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there. We'll be there in just a minute. And if anyone ever had an excuse for sin, if anyone could ever blame their sin on outside circumstances and have it be valid, it's Jesus in this passage. And yet, what we see in this passage is that Jesus is tempted, yet sinless. Jesus is going to be tempted by Satan, with things that must have been incredibly tempting. Yet he's going to refuse to sin. And he's going to refuse to sin even when all the outside influences are conspiring against him to make him want to sin. So look at verses 1 and 2 with me. Luke chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 say, Jesus Full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for, for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. Like, I haven't gone through like, and carefully analyzed this, but I'm pretty sure there's not a bigger example of like subtle understatement in the Bible than. At the end of 40 days, he was hungry. Like, he didn't eat for 40 days. Like, of course, he was hungry. But then, like, I sometimes wonder if I like, really believe that, if I like, really believe he was hungry. Like, like I read that Jesus didn't eat for 40 days. Like, Again, it's just so unfathomable to me, like, so uncomprehensible that I think, yeah, but he's Jesus. Even though like I mentally believe like, the historic kind of Christian teaching that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, and that fully man he experiences all the things that we experience. Like I don't always feel the significance of that. So in situations like this, I tend to think of Jesus less as fully man and more as like Superman dressed up as Clark Kent. Like he looks normal. But really, he's hiding superpowers that allow him to do things like fast for 40 days. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Right? Jesus was fully human. So at the end of 40 days, without eating, he was hungry. He was as physically hungry as you or I would be if we went 40 days without eating. Which means, right, if anyone ever had a reason to be hangry, it was Jesus here. If anyone could ever legitimately use the excuse, like, I couldn't help it. like It was my hunger. My hunger made me do it. It was Jesus here. And it's in that condition of extreme hunger and weakness that Satan comes and he brings a full frontal attack against Jesus. In an interview about overcoming anger, Dr. Dina Abimulam. An endocrinologist at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. She gives this advice. She says, when you're hangry, try to avoid any mentally or emotionally taxing tasks until you've had a chance to refuel. Like, avoid any mentally or emotionally taxing tasks until you've had a chance to refuel. And, like, needless to say, Jesus won't be doing that here. Like, keep like, going to do the opposite, right? There's Nothing more emotionally and mentally taxing than like, resisting extreme temptation. And Jesus must do it at his, at his physical weakest. Jesus had been in the wilderness for 40 days, not eating the entire time. And Luke tells us that like, Satan spent the whole time with him, right, looking for a way to break Jesus, tempting him, trying to get him to become disobedient to the Father. And now, at the end of 40 days, Satan's going to unleash his final full-on assault. He sees Jesus weak with hunger, and so he's going to throw everything he had that Jesus to tried to get him to break. Because he knows if he can get the Son of God to sin, then God's plan to redeem people for himself is thwarted. God's plan to save people from the power of sin is ruined if, God can, if Satan can get Jesus to sin. You can imagine how challenging this must have been for Jesus. Without food for 40 days, he's by himself in the wilderness. He doesn't have other people around him to encourage him and to exhort him on. He's exhausted from already having resisted Satan for 40 days. This must have been a, a time of deep trial for Jesus. And so a question we might be tempted to ask like, how did Jesus get himself in this situation? Or often when we're in the midst of trials, we ask ourselves like, how did I get here? Like, why am I in this situation? Like, God, why me? Why am I here? Like, what went wrong? But in Jesus' case here, we get the answer. Right there in verse 1. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. God the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness in order to have this encounter with Satan. Like, this is important. Because, like, so often when we go through trials, when we're battling temptation to sin, like, it so easy to question and to wonder, like, like, Where is God? What did I do wrong? Why did God leave me? But here's Jesus. He's gone 40 days without food. He's continually battling temptation from Satan. And he's going through all of this trial and temptation, listen, because he was perfectly obedient to God. And he followed the leading of the Holy Spirit. He's here because he followed and obeyed God. It was God's plan and God's will for Jesus to, for Jesus to go through these temptations. Okay, now let's be clear. Like there are times when we go through trials, when we go through temptations that are brought on by ourselves. Either because the trials are a natural consequence for our sin or because God is disciplining us for our sin. But sometimes we go through trials and temptations and hardships that are entirely part of God's will for us. Because God has a bigger purpose in mind. And that's the case here. And ultimately, the fact that God leads Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, it means that Satan is nothing more than a tool being used by God to achieve his purposes. And that should give us great confidence and hope that even when things are hard, even when it seems obvious by looking out at the world that Satan is active, maybe we feel like Satan's winning sometimes, that this passage should give us confidence that God is still sovereign, that God is still in control, God is still at work, God has a plan. God's even using Satan's work to bring about his purposes. It doesn't mean life will be easy. It certainly wasn't easy for Jesus here. But it does mean that God is working even when things are hard. After showing us how God leads us out in the wilderness, Luke then jumps in to the story of how Jesus is tempted by Satan. Well, we'll see as we go throughout this passage right, that Jesus is tempted in three different ways. And there can be a tendency when we like hear this passage or this passage is taught right, to focus on like what this passage can teach us about how to battle sin in our own life. Like how did Jesus overcome sin? Now let me learn about how I can overcome sin or temptation in my own life. And that's, that's certainly true. There are certainly things we can learn about resisting temptation in this passage. But I think it's really important for us to understand that the purpose of this passage is primarily to teach us about Jesus, right? not to give us a how-to guide for battling our own sin. In particular, this passage wants us to see that Jesus is a new and better Adam and a new and better Israel. Where Adam failed in the garden to resist Satan, Jesus will succeed. Where Israel failed during its 40 years of wandering in the wilderness to battle sin, Jesus will succeed. Luke didn't write this primarily to teach us about how to battle sin. He wrote this primarily to show us how Jesus has already defeated Satan and sin. So with that in mind, let's look at the ways that Satan tempts Jesus, starting in verse 3. Verses 3 and 4 we read, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And just notice how Satan starts. Like, if you are the Son of God. Right. Immediately before this, in Luke, Jesus had been baptized by John in the Jordan and heard God say, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So God had to Jesus as the Son. And now Satan's saying, like, If you are Him, do this. If you are really the Son... Do these things to show that you are the Son. This idea of God's Son brings to mind two other situations from the Bible. Last week, we looked at Luke's genealogy of Jesus, which concludes by calling Adam the Son of God. So Adam is God's Son. And then in Hosea 11.2, God says, Out of Egypt I have called my son. And when he says my son in that passage, he's referring to the nation of Israel. When he says he called them out of Egypt, he's hearkening back to how he, when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, God sent Moses to lead them out of Israel and into the promised land. When they reached the promised land, they failed to trust God to lead them into the promised land. And so God sent them to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And during those 40 years of wandering, similar to the 40 days Jesus experiences now, right, Israel will face temptations time and again, and each time they will fail to be obedient to God. Like in fact, three times in this passage, in Luke, Jesus is going to respond to Satan's temptations by quoting from the Old Testament. And each of those quotes is going to come from the book of Deuteronomy. And the book of Deuteronomy is written as the people of God are back on the brink of the promised land. Their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness are complete. And now Moses is giving them one last sermon before they enter the promised land. In that sermon, Moses is reminding them of the ways they have failed in the past, and he's exhorting them to live lives that honor God as they enter into the promised land. All of Jesus' replies to Satan are things that Moses is exhorting the people of Israel to do as they entered the land. So, the Old Testament, we see these two other sons, right? We see Adam, we see Israel. But in the Old Testament, we see both of those sons fail to be obedient to God. Both of those sons gave in to temptation. They gave in to sin. And the question of this passage is, will Jesus succeed where Adam and Israel have failed? Or can Satan lead him into sin, just as he did with Adam and Israel? In other words, the question at stake here. It's the question we just sang in the song. Is he worthy? We just sang, is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? And that song comes from Revelation 5, where John says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seal and open the scroll? but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Adam isn't worthy. Israel isn't worthy. You and I certainly are not worthy. We need someone who is worthy to open the scroll for us. And if there is no one worthy, then we are without hope. God's plan to save a people for himself hinge on someone being worthy. So therefore, because God's plan hinges on the Son being worthy, Satan's plan hinges on showing that the Son is not worthy. In a real way, like, the war over the fate of the universe is fought over that question right? Is anyone worthy? And one of the key battles in that war plays out right here with Satan seeking to prove that the Son is not worthy and Jesus seeking to prove that he is. So Satan starts his attack by first tempting Jesus with provision. So, as we said, like Jesus had not eaten for 40 days. Right? He's incredibly hungry. Like, normally, like I wouldn't find a loaf of bread that tempting. Full like, of ice cream, sure. right? Like A loaf of bread, whatever. Bread's fine. Right? But if I hadn't eaten for 40 days, the idea of a loaf of bread, they like, turned this rock into a loaf of bread, it must have been incredibly tempting. And of course, like Jesus could have done it. Right? Just a few chapters, he's going to turn water into wine. Right? He's going to multiply loaves and fishes. He could have done it. Right? And Satan is inviting him here to use his special relationship with the Father to make his life just a little bit easier. To take a little bit of a shortcut. But if Jesus does that, his mission in Hebrews 2, we read, "For this reason, He had to be made like them, that Jesus had to be made like us, fully human in every way, in order that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because He himself suffered when He was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. If Jesus takes the shortcut, if Jesus turns the stone into bread, then he didn't suffer the same way we do when we're tempted. And if that's true, then he would have been unable to help us in our temptation. He would have been unable to make atonement for our sin. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't take the shortcut. He doesn't take the easy way out. Instead, he responds by quoting Deuteronomy 8 and saying, man shall not live by bread alone. Israel, throughout their time in the wilderness, complained over and over again about their hunger. And they allowed their hunger to lead to complaining and to disobedience. But Jesus here, by quoting this passage, he shows that he is the true and better Israel by refusing to do the same thing. Jesus chooses obedience to God over His desire for food, and so Satan's first attempt at causing Jesus to sin fails. So he tries a different tactic. Picking up in verse eight, verse five, we read: "The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world." And he said to him. I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So after trying and failing to tempt Jesus with provision, Satan now tries to tempt him with power. If you're like me, the first thing you think when you read this passage is, is Satan telling the truth? Can he really make this offer? But it's worth noting that Jesus doesn't argue with Satan's claim to have this power. and In fact, in the book of John, Jesus several places calls Satan the ruler of this world. So there is a sense right, that Satan's offer is valid. He really can offer what he's offering here. All that Jesus needs to do to get that power is to bend the knee and worship Satan. But the kingdom that Satan offered is earthly and temporary, and God planned for Jesus for him to have an eternal and heavenly kingdom. Part of God's plan to give Jesus that kingdom involves him having to endure the pain of the cross. And so Satan's temptation here is to avoid that pain. Avoid the pain of the cross and to receive the power early. Like all Jesus needs to do to both avoid the cross and receive unimaginable power and glory is worship Satan. He would get to avoid pain and suffering, and he'd also get to get glory and power. That's a double whammy of temptation that any of us in our own power would succumb to. Avoid pain, get glory. That sounds great. But if Jesus succumbs to that temptation, then he is not worthy. He will have power and might for a little while. But he will not be able to open the scroll and receive eternal blessing and honor and glory. And if he's not worthy to open the scroll, right, then we are without hope. We would have no hope of our sins being forgiven. We'd have no hope of spending eternity with him in the new heavens and the new earth. If Jesus is not worthy, if Jesus gives into this temptation, we are hopeless thankfully, Jesus doesn't give in. And instead, he responds by saying, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This reply from Jesus again comes from Deuteronomy.
4: Right?
5: As the people are preparing to enter the promised land, and after their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and during those 40 years of wandering, they have over and over and over again given into idolatry. They've always worshipped other false gods. And it's always had disastrous results. And so, by resisting this temptation to idolatry, where Israel failed, Jesus is once again showing that He is the true and the better Israel. That He is succeeding where they have failed. That He is the true Son. So Satan's now been thwarted twice. He's not ready to give up just yet. Picking up the passage in verse 9, we read, The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Having failed to tempt Jesus with provision, having failed to tempt him with power, Satan now tempts Jesus with protection. And Satan starts this temptation by quoting scripture at Jesus. Like, you know how, again, movies, it's often, like, super easy to know when the bad guy shows up. Like, the music changes. You can tell by his look. Like, oh, hey, that's the bad guy. Like, we just watched Toy Story with our girls. And when the neighbor kid, Sid, comes on screen with his, like, black T-shirt with a skull on it and, like, blowing up toys, like, you don't sit and wonder, like, huh. I wonder if that kid's good or bad. It's like, you know, like right off the bat, like he's trouble. Right? I think we assume the same thing would be true with Satan. When he shows up, he's going to have horns and a pitchfork, and it's going to be super obvious that he's trouble, so we better watch out. But the Bible says that Satan can clothe himself as an angel of light. Look, we see an example of that here. Satan's quoting the Bible to Jesus. He looks spiritual. He looks inviting. And that should be a a word of warning for all of us. When you listen to people talking about the Bible, or when you come across some pithy quote or saying on your social media that it's a Bible verse attached to it, or even if you listen to me, Just because there's a Bible verse attached, or just because it comes from the Bible, just because it sounds spiritual, doesn't mean it's true. The devil is very good at twisting the Bible as he does here with Jesus. And we need to be discerning, to be on guard, to see if what's being said is really true. Not just whether it sounds holy or sounds spiritual. So so Satan here, he twists God's word to tempt Jesus to demonstrate his status as God's son by throwing himself off the temple. Like if you throw yourself off the temple, God will save you. You're the son, aren't you? Of course God will save you. But Jesus again quotes Scripture back at Satan saying, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, this verse comes from Deuteronomy 6. In fact, in Deuteronomy 6, the full verse says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. And Massah is the place in the book of Exodus where the people complained to Moses about a lack of water. And so God told Moses to strike a rock and water would come out. The people weren't trusting God. They wanted God to prove that he was God, so they tested him. And so Moses named the place Messiah, which means testing. But the people of Israel had repeatedly failed at not putting God to the test. But they tested him over and over and over again throughout their wilderness wanderings. But again, Jesus doesn't do that. He knows that it is a sin to put the Lord to the test. And so he doesn't do it. And once again, he succeeds where Israel failed. And in verse 13 we read, When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. So three times Satan comes and tempts Jesus, three times he's defeated. And he's defeated, and so he flees. And by doing that, like Jesus kind of proved James 4.7, which says, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And Jesus epitomizes that in this passage. Like Jesus has resisted the devil, and now the devil is forced to flee. And as the passage foreshadows, right, Satan's not entirely done with Jesus. He will come one more time, as the passage says, at an opportune time. In chapter twenty-two of Luke, Luke tells us that that opportune time is when he enters. Judas and causes Judas to betray Jesus and hand him over to be crucified. But the result of that encounter will be no different than this one. Both at the crucifixion and here, Jesus is victorious over Satan. And because he is victorious, because he defeats Satan, Jesus is proves himself to be worthy. Jesus who would live his whole life and never sin. He overcame every temptation that the devil threw at him and he never sinned, he never committed wrong. Hebrews 4:15 says, "We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin." Like Jesus did what Adam failed to do. Jesus did what Israel failed to do. Jesus did what you and I failed to do. Jesus was perfectly obedient to God, even though he was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted. So earlier we read part of Revelation 5, where John was asking, is anyone worthy? He's looking around and he said, no one was found who was worthy. But now, in light of what we just heard about Judas in this passage, hear a little bit more of Revelation 5. In Revelation 5 we read, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside But then one of the elders said to me, "'Do not weep. "'See the Lion of the tribe of Judah, "'the Root of David, has triumphed. "'He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. "'Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, "'standing at the center of the throne. "'He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him "'who sat on the throne.' And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll, and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God, for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Just hear that last verse. Like you, like Jesus. You made them. You made us. Jesus made us. Sinners that we are, to be a kingdom of priests, a kingdom and priests to serve our God. We will reign on the earth because Jesus is worthy Because Jesus did not sin. He was able, with His blood, to purchase for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. That includes you, that includes me, if we've placed our faith in Jesus. If we have placed our faith in Jesus, Jesus has made us a kingdom and priest that will reign on the earth. Not because we are worthy of any of that, but because He is worthy. Jesus is the only one to resist the temptations of Satan. But through His death, through His resurrection, He has made it possible for our sins to be forgiven. Everyone who believes in Jesus has been forgiven of their sins. And God sees us. As if we lived the perfect life that Jesus lived, as if we resisted all those temptations. Because Jesus is worthy, we are worthy. So the question then is do you believe that? Do you believe that there was a real man, Jesus Christ? That he was really tempted in every way that we are, yet didn't sin? That He was really crucified and buried and raised again. And then, do you believe that your sin has separated you from God? And that the only way to be made right with God is through faith in that Son. And it's not that I invite you to place your faith in Him. That is your only hope. Only He is worthy. But if you do believe that, if you've Probably many of you have believed that for a long time. So then the question becomes, are you rejoicing in that? Like, Do you really feel the joy that comes with the truth of this passage? Is that the fact that God sent his Son, and that that Son of the sinless life and defeated Satan, that the fact that that son died for you so that you could be victorious over Satan and worthy to be a kingdom and a priest. Right? Does that move you to joy and obedience, right? or does it feel old and mundane and like something you know but doesn't really impact how you live? Do you feel the joy of the fact that Jesus defeated Satan? Or is it just a a doctrine you know you're supposed to believe, but is isn't real? If you're a Christian, yes, this passage has some guidance on how to fight temptation. But primarily, this passage is an invitation to remember and to marvel anew at what Jesus did. When Adam failed when Israel failed, when you and I failed, Jesus succeeded. He is worthy. Let's pray. Father, we praise you, we thank you that Jesus is worthy. We were without hope that there was no one worthy but you sent your son will be man to be tempted in every way as we are, be crucified, buried, suddenly raised again on the third day, so that by believing in Him we can be worthy and we can be worthy of eternal life with you in the new heavens and the new earth. God, for people who haven't embraced that truth before, I pray that you would move in their heart to see their need of someone to be worthy in their place. They would turn and place their faith in you. And for those of us who have placed our faith in you, who acknowledge that in our own power we cannot be worthy, we cannot be good enough. But we acknowledge that we need Jesus, God. Would you help us to be amazed over and over again at what a great Savior Jesus is? Would what you did for us through sending Jesus never get old, never become mundane? Would it move us To desire above all else to bring glory to Your name as we proclaim Your kingdom to the world around us. God, would we be glorified? Would You be glorified in our lives as we live out the truth that we heard in the passage today? In Jesus' name, Amen. By way of benediction, hear a few more words from Revelation chapter 5. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. John says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne, And to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Go praising the one who is worthy. You're dismissed.